2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today, a panel of Galacticos in Wilson, Eau Claire and Denning talk you through the Champions League draw, PSG, Bayern and Liverpool, Real Madrid, the standout ties and a bonus Barcelona-Manchester United in the Europa League. Meanwhile, who can afford Liverpool? Could they find a nice billionaire? Do they exist? We'll find out if Barry has an opinion on whether the new Southampton boss Nathan Jones is Good or not? There's some World Cup squads to take a little look at, and there's a whole lot of off the pitch stuff to get into. FIFA send a nice message saying, "Isn't it time we just forgot about people dying and gay rights and just watch some football because it brings people together?" There's some authentic protests from German fans, some less than authentic protests from Big Beer, and we'll update you on the case of Abdullah ibayes, who Amnesty say is serving a three-year prison sentence following an unfair trial in Qatar. All that plus is the fittest 38-year-old in the world, a fan of the pod, your questions, and that's today. Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel, Jonathan Wilson, welcome. Morning, how are you doing? I am tremendous, thank you very much. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max Rushton. Hello, Filippo Clare. Hello, Max. Uh, let's start with the Champions League draw. Um, so, the draw was made yesterday RB Leipzig Manchester City, Club Bruges Benfica, Liverpool Real Madrid, AC Milan Spurs, Eintracht Frankfurt Napoli. Borussia Dortmund-Chelsea, Inter Milan v Porto and PSG versus Bayern Munich. It is the fourth time in six years that Liverpool and Real Madrid meet. Uh, What did Florentino Perez say about the reason for a Super League? Was so that these two sides could finally get to play each other. And we should caveat all of this with the fact that all of these sides could look totally different in terms of form, signings, injuries in February. But it is still fun to speculate. And before we do Liverpool-Real Madrid, let's do PSG-Bayern because that is... Mouth watering. Joey says, "How much did Philippe laugh when PSG drew Bayern Munich after somehow surrendering first place in their Champions League group?"
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm still laughing. You can
2: hear. <laughs> um, what do you make of it, Philly? I mean, it's 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 terrible for both of them, isn't it?
3: Really? I suppose so. Um, I would say I, I was reading with um, uh, interest, great interest, in the preview that Jonathan has already done for the uh, for the real paper this morning. Uh, and in which he he puts Bayern, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan as favourite to go through. I, I would actually think that PSG have got a, a very decent chance this time. And uh, and as we've said, they're in danger of becoming a, a truly good side. The one problem they had uh, was the risk of implosion in the squad after everything that happened with Kylian Mbappe. The rumours, which were actually more than rumours, of uh, a disquiet in the dressing room. Uh, Obviously, we'll have to see how Neymar reacts to the loss of his favorite politician in Brazil, but uh, he might have forgotten all about it a bit later on uh, next year. But apart from that, they look far more balanced. Uh, They seem to have solved most of these problems, the situation Mbappe. The three uh, are working absolutely beautifully um, in front. Leo Messi, I wouldn't say he's back to his best, but uh, he's certainly uh, absolutely stupendous at the moment. Uh, found his mojo again. Uh, Neymar is probably playing his best season for PSG. Bappe has been blowing hot, blowing hot and cold, but is coming back as well. They look far more settled in midfield. Uh, they've got better fullbacks, which was a huge problem for them uh, for a long time. And now with Nuno Mendes and uh, Hakimi, well, you know, they've got what it takes. Uh, they look very strong, absolutely, um, throughout. And um, I also believe that they've got the right manager to prepare them for, the, for that tie. To me, it's very strange to say that, but as a team, if not as a club, they seem to me more settled than Bayern Munich, which is one of the reasons why I can imagine them actually going, going through that, um, that particular round of 16 tie, um, which, of course, fills me with delight.
4: Um, all of that's
3: true. Wilson.
4: Um, the, the PSG look way better than, <laughs> than they have done, well, ever, probably. However, uh, and also I've I've got doubts about this buy-in. not just because they've uh, had a, by their stands, a pretty iffy start to the Bundesliga season. You know, the the four draws are defeated at Augsburg. Nagelsmann in big European ties does not have a good record. So there's all kinds of question marks about them. But PSG remain PSG until the moment at which they're a different PSG. And maybe this is the moment when that happens. But... I watched the game against Juve and I watched the home game against Benfica. And in both of them, they had periods when they played brilliantly. And then they just sort of switched off for half an hour for no reason. And that's what did them at the end. You know, that draw against Benfica, which happened to be, this, I think, the day after the Mbappe rumours or Mbappe reports had come out. They, they let slip a position that, that they should never have let slip. And that that, that remains sort of hard widened at the club. I also think you look at that forward line and you know, Messi is playing brilliantly and Neymar is playing brilliantly but none of the three of them really do any work and can you do that against a really top side also in terms of world cup hangovers i think almost whatever happens with argentina messi will have a hangover if they win it his 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 career's done it's finished it's over he's 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 he's, he's completed the final quest if they lose he's going to be devastated uh neymar n- not quite the same extent but it's not dissimilar that he is the key to that brazil and if brazil win well maybe spends a month partying. If they don't win, maybe spends a month sulking. Mbappe is prone to sulk if somebody looks at him funny at breakfast. Can can you win a Champions League? Can you even win a big Champions League tie against a team like Bayern with sulky players that don't work? I'm sceptical. Hang
2: on, I'm trying to think. What's the worst? What's the worst situation then? Is it Brazil win? Brazil beat Argentina in the final, and France are knocked out on penalties in the semi final. Then you've got a partying Neymar and a sulking Messi and Mbappe. That's the absolute sort of. That's the worst case scenario. For, and they've all played the whole tournament as well, so they're all knackered as well. I mean, I would say Barry for it to be really PSGE, they would have to not buying out and then go out in the next round to you know Benfica or, or Porto or something
0: yeah uh, look i i literally have nothing to add to what the lads have said that that was they've pretty much covered all the bases i think they probably will go through but i still think they'll find some way to to not win the champions league i really hope that's the case
4: i mean i genuinely feel sorry for Bayern here like they've all the iffy domestic form, but they've just won six out of six in the group, including beating Inter yeah. and Barca twice. And what's your reward? <laughs> just play the club who spent more money than any other club in the history of football.
2: Um, go on then, Barrett. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go first on Liverpool Real Madrid, because otherwise there's a danger that you could just do that answer. Every
1: yeah.
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> No, I I was listening to the two lads and just mentally tick, tick, tick Or any point I wanted to make. They've they've completely covered them, uh, even to the the Neymar going on the piss for six weeks or whatever, (laughs) if if Brazil win the World Cup. Um, Real Madrid, Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool have been playing well in the Champions League this season. And their Champions League form has been completely removed to their domestic form, and I'm I'm not quite sure how they're managing to sort of switch it on in the Champions League, and but not at, on on the domestic front. I I think this is a coin toss basically. Uh, Liverpool are going to have to beat them at some point, aren't they? Uh, they've lost the last two in the last two years, but yeah, I I, I do you think it's a coin toss? I I would be inclined towards Liverpool. I have to say,
2: really, I'm I'm I don't, I'm inclined towards Real Madrid. But I guess it's you know once again, who knows exactly what Liverpool will be like in in a couple of months. Wilson thoughts?
4: Well, hey, I I think I think this has been a great draw for football, and by that I mean football as the slightly cantankerous, mischievous old man who, despite all the crap that gets thrown at him every day and all the the deluge of money, still finds a way every now and again just to tweak the nose of the people whose noses deserve tweaking. So for Perez to say last month, oh, it's a disgrace that Romand and Liverpool have only met nine times. And then footballs go, all right, well, here's a tenth. And and by the way, (laughs) uh, and and, yeah, Liverpool, they're out of the title race. So this is their chance to... You know, this is the tournament they should be focusing on. Uh, I don't know how much difference that makes, but there's, there's no sort of sense of Liverpool fighting on multiple fronts here. This, this is the front. I guess maybe getting in the top four, but you know, they can win the Champions League and that, that's what they should should go for. If they get players back from injury and injuries have been a, you know, a huge problem for them, if they return, well, you know, the squad is still really good. Their, their form against good teams recently has been good. I know Napoli you know, had already won five games, had nothing to play for, but they beat them. They beat Manchester City. They beat Spurs. The light hasn't gone out completely at Liverpool. There's still something there. Uh, and I also think that Real Madrid midfield uh, post-Casemiro, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, uh, Schumann and, and um, Camavinga, they add a sort of a, a dynamism and an aggression that, that maybe Casemiro can't bring. But it hasn't really been tested yet. The group was pretty straightforward for them. And, and Real Madrid lost last night, didn't they, to Raya So they're not even top in yeah, they're behind at what looks a pretty average Barcelona. Uh, I thought Real Madrid were pretty lucky to win the Champions League last season. Or, or lucky maybe is the wrong word, but it wasn't this sort of... I mean, really lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but if they were reliant on brilliant players doing brilliant things at key moments rather than this sort of unstoppable juggernaut of, of excellence. And you sort of feel that that will be derailed at some point. Philippe, can you see
2: RB Leipzig causing Manchester City problems? I, mean, they, they, I think they could be quite a dangerous team for City in a way.
3: Uh, over a single game, perhaps, over two, I don't think there's a chance. That's the problem. And Manchester City, I think, is one of those teams that makes uh, a doubleheader feels like a mini-league almost, that, you know, they'll find the resources. Um, one way or another, uh, could be like diving in the 93rd minute like they did against Fulham, you know, for Kevin De Bruyne. I'll never say that again uh, enough and uh, they will find the solution. And um, Leipzig are, are doing very well. Uh, it's actually, by the way, quite amazing that they are the underdog and the nice guys. When you think about
1: who they are. You know.
3: <laughs> it's, uh, big oil v. big energy yeah. drink. And also Manchester City is one of those teams whose squad is so impervious to injuries and, and, and suspensions and the like. Whatever happens to them, they've got solutions. You know, which is not something that you would see almost any other team are taking part in this Champions League. The resources are such that they won't be affected by that, and if need be, they will still buy some some players in January if uh, they think they're a little bit short in some departments that they've only got two players for each position and they need three so no I, I can see I, I cannot see Leipzig do anything but perhaps rattle them for a while, uh, getting us excited about their play uh, um, Scoring a few goals without a doubt, but but getting out. That's really, yeah, <laughs> sorry.
2: No, don't apologise. Um, the other two English sides, Barry, I imagine Spurs will look at AC Milan and AC Milan will look at Spurs and think, that's not too bad. And I imagine Dortmund and Chelsea will probably feel the same about each other too.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're bang on there. Um, I think it's, it, it, there are two draws where just neither team have anything to be afraid of question, will Chelsea be on their third manager of the tournament by the time this tie comes around? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's possible but they, they will see those ties as winnable I would fancy Chelsea to go through against Dortmund and but I, I, there does seem to be, and maybe it's just on Twitter where empty vessels make a lot of noise, but there does seem to be growing descent, dissent among the 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 ranks at Chelsea are the ranks of supporters with Potter already which I find remarkable people saying he's out of his debt and uh, that that he got that game all wrong at the weekend but I I would back Chelsea to go through against Dortmund and I think I'd uh, probably fancy AC Milan to go through against Spurs but Spurs are tending to find a way even if they're not uh, playing particularly well at the moment
2: Barcelona, Manchester United in the Europa League, Wilson, is great, isn't it? Of, of the of the possible draws you could have. I guess Man United, Ajax would have been fun from a Ten Hag point of view. But to have a game of that magnitude in a kind of playoff in the Europa League this early is wonderful.
4: And, and again, it's sort of football as this mischievous demon. Just sort of saying to Barcelona, yeah, you thought you could spend your way out of this crisis. Nat. Yeah, we're going to give you a horrible Champions League group and you're going to fail in that. And then you're going to get Manchester United, who are improving and who kind of, I, I think, are actually genuinely motivate the Europa League in a way they, they pass, possibly haven't been before. So, yeah, it's a, Europa League games are tend to be pretty discerning with what I watch. You know, I, I certainly won't watch a game every Thursday. This one I'll absolutely categorically be watching. Largely because, it's, it's odd, I, I, I mean, I, I, maybe this is an age thing. But I, when that draw was made, my, my brain immediately went back to the famous tie in, in the Winners' Cup, Cup in 1984. Uh, when United came from 2-0 down to, to beat Barca 3-2 at Old Trafford. And I sort of really have to think, of oh, yeah, they've, they've played them in two Champions League finals since then and, and in the Cup Winners' Cup final in 91. But I guess it's you know, a two-legged tie. If it's anything like the game in 84, then it'll be tremendous.
2: Are Liverpool for sale? Uh, David Ornstein of The Athletic um, broke the story, I think, um, uh, tweeting that Liverpool have been put up for sale by Fenway Sports Group. Uh, sale deck has been produced for interested parties. Um, which presumably is some kind of business type thing. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are assisting the evaluation process. Unclear if the deal gets done, but FSG are inviting offers. Um, they, FSG said, there've been a number of recent changes of ownership and rumours of changes in ownership at EPL clubs. Inevitably, we're asked regularly about Fenway Sports Group ownership of Liverpool. Um, uh, FSG has frequently received expressions of interest from third parties seeking to become shareholders in Liverpool. FSG has said before that under the right terms and conditions we would consider new shareholders if it was in the best interests of Liverpool as a club. FSG remains fully committed to the success of Liverpool both on and off the pitch. Uh, Richard says, as a Liverpool fan, how do I avoid being completely effing depressed at seeing people wanting to get bought by a dictatorship if it means signing Bellingham and Mbappe? um, That top five records. how annoyed is Klopp? going to be? Now he has to face questions about Liverpool being taken over potentially by a state after he complained about it earlier this season. Um, what do you make of, of this, Philippe? Is there a nice, happy billionaire who might buy Liverpool and we can all be happy about it?
3: No, but there are probably uh, about a dozen uh, American investment funds who have already uh, manifested an interest of some kind. Um, the thing, is, is it going to be a sale or is it going to be um, the sale actually of part of the capital is not absolutely clear. That's the first thing. The second thing, you've got to say that from FSG's point of view, I think they bought the club for 300 million pounds. They've, they have invested quite a bit of their own money. But if you look at the market value of a Liverpool, if you think that Chelsea was sold for 2.5 billion, plus, of course, the money that they had earmarked for development of the stadium and so forth, you're looking at, uh, obviously, a sale price which is much higher than that you know, certainly over 3 billion. And you think if you're a businessman, which is what GW Henry is, and you look at um, how you can grow Liverpool beyond what it is now, you think, well, because the Super League in which they were very much involved has gone through the window, uh, because their idea as well of uh, reshaping the Premier League, you will remember that, with supposedly to help uh, the lower rungs of the pyramid, and that went through as well. And, you know, they probably can't see ways at the moment to increase the profitability of the club over the medium and long term beyond what they've already achieved. So it makes complete sense for them to try and make ROI, return on investment, knowing that at the moment, um, American investments, investment funds are basically knocking at the door of every club, small, average or big in Europe, to try and, and get in the game. So it makes, I mean, that's, not exactly uh, something that makes you fall in love with the game, but there's nothing there that I find particularly shocking because I don't know exactly what Liverpool fans were expecting from their owners. Did they genuinely think they came into the club because J.W. Henry had a picture of Kevin Keegan in his boyhood bedroom? Of course not. So it makes sense from their point of view, I have to say, And um, in terms of where the the club goes, um, it might not be a catastrophe. And as to another um, state coming in, I have to say that the cupboard is probably bare at at this moment. Uh, The one perhaps that you could see is Bahrain. Uh, There have been uh, rumors of the Bahrainis trying to get into... uh, uh, Italian football in particular. So it's possible that they might be interested by a club like Liverpool. I'm not too sure that the fans would be too happy about that. And I'm not sure that the fan reaction would be the same that uh, we've had in Newcastle. Um, so the likelihood is, yes, you would have an American investment fund, another one, uh, just getting in the game and um, trying to um, yeah, trying to to buy and, and to grow Liverpool in a different fashion. I, I, I'd just like to, to see, I think, Elon Musk buy
0: it. He's clearly bored. He has the money. So he could buy Liverpool, sack all the staff, all the players, and you know, turn them into a basketball
2: team or something. <laughs> just Wouldn't he sack all the players and invite them back? I'm very confused. I'm trying to keep up and I'm confused and I don't know whether I'm meant to leave and go to Master Don. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't even... I've, I've yet to log in to Master Don. I, I, can't, I don't need another social media site. Can't I just dr- let this die in front of me and then not join
3: another one the first time i heard about that i thought people were talking about monty don and uh, <laughs> which is a better name by the way than Mastodon.
2: i think monty I, I let's face it if monty don ran a massive social media it would be quite pleasant wouldn't it It would be a nice it would be a nice place um, you can only imagine um all right that'll do for part one part two uh, we'll begin by talking about the sacking of ralph hassenhutl which obviously happened a minute after we stopped recording yesterday Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. A few tickets still to go for the live show next Thursday evening uh, at Earth in Hackney. Me, Barry, uh, Lars, Ellis, James, uh, hopefully some cameos from... People I might be looking at right now, we shall see. Head to slash Guardian Live if you'd like to come. I'm streaming it around the world as well, so uh, wherever you are, watch us, please. Um, so, look, Ralph Hassan was sacked. We didn't need to do an emergency pod, Barry, because we basically presumed he had been sacked or was about to be. Um, Southampton have been given permission to speak to uh, Luton Town Manager Nathan Jones. Our thoughts are with Faker Others at this difficult time. The second time our thoughts have been with Faker Others about Nathan Jones leaving Luton. I think. Does that make sense to you? Nathan Jones is clearly a good manager. He
0: got Luton into the playoffs last season, despite the fact that they have, I think only Blackpool had a lower wage bill than them in the championship. And the championship has a lot of teams with very big wage bills and budgets and Luton are operating on a comparative shoestring. So that that was a monumental achievement. He's done well, you know, and he, did well to get them to the championship. But the, the the elephant in the room is obviously the time he left them to go to Stoke and it was an absolute disaster. But a lot of managers seem to be failing at Stoke. So maybe there's something wrong there. Uh, I mean, Alex Neil left Sunderland to go to Stoke and he's not having a very good time of it at the moment. I think he just lost his fourth match in a row. Can't say I'm too sorry for him, to be honest, but there you go. So maybe the problem at Stoke is is somewhere else—the ownership, the the staff, the whatever the players. Um, but I can't say I blame Southampton for looking at Nathan Jones. He seems to be a, a good young manager, but that his time at Stoke is a worry and is a concern. But uh, it it's a great opportunity for him, and uh, I have no idea how he'll fare.
3: When we say we have no idea, um. I'm wondering if the Southampton owners have any idea. It's not the first time that they make decisions which are surprising to me. And maybe it will surprise you that I think it's a more surprising decision than it's been portrayed. I mean, they they already... I remember they they got rid of Claude Puel after he'd taken Southampton to the League Cup final and they finished eighth in the Premier League because the football was not exciting enough. I think, okay, you're Southampton, guys. And look at... um, their transfer policy. Um, look at how Southampton prepared for this season, and you will see it's been abysmal. And it was a squad that needed, uh, you know, quite a few reinforcements. And they've gone for cheap, young, some of them very talented players. But Hasan Hutto has been given an, an awful hand to deal with, and you could say, and I would say, that I think he's been overperforming with that team uh, over the years, and that. He's, he's a very fine manager, and whoever takes him on will, will get a very fine coach, indeed. So I'm not absolutely sure this is going to change anything in the fortunes of the club. They, they look to me like a club which is declining, 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 is not making the necessary efforts to compete on the transfer market, and probably will be uh, rewarded for that, if, you, you know, if that's the word, uh, by a very, very tough season and perhaps relegation. And I, I don't know. I know sometimes people say the, uh, it's like the electric shock of parting with a manager, getting a new one. It can get you somewhere. Uh, but we're not in the case where, like an Aston Villa, where you get rid of a young and proven manager, basically, Steven Gerrard, and you bring in somebody who is a, a genuine European class manager, like Unai not. You're not doing that. I can't see where the upgrade is. And... It's also been shown, and I know that's a bit counterintuitive, that sometimes when teams are not going well at the stage of the season, when you compare, there was a statistical analysis, I think, by CIS about this, and when you change the, whether you change the manager or not change the manager. And the result is actually statistically almost the same. Like the, the new manager shock sometimes produces a few results, Sometimes doesn't
2: so no so no team should ever change their just no, the manager. No, well you know you know what I mean. Forever. Obviously,
3: there are cases where you don't have an, any choice. But but uh, taken as a whole, the so-called new manager bounce is 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 one of those you know legends that football is r- ripe with. It doesn't automatically bring in the results that you expect, and in some cases, it actually can be detrimental. So uh, I have to say I, I find this decision understandable in view of the results and perhaps not so understandable when you take into consideration the state of the club and the state of the team at this particular moment in time. Joe says, does Arteta have Philippe's heart?
2: Does he love this version of the Arsenal?
3: Of course I do. What, what more can I say? Of course I do. I haven't had so much fun. Um, I mean, I, I can't remember. I, I've said it again and again. Um, the atmosphere uh, at at the club, in the stands, is the best that I've ever experienced. And I include in this uh, the atmosphere when the team was riding high in the early 2000s. It's incredibly exciting. There's a kind of togetherness that is experienced very rarely, uh, and a sense of communion with the players, which is very, very rare indeed, uh, you know, in 21st century football. So we're having a ball, of course. Of course I'm enjoying it. I, and I know it's not, it's, not, it's not going to last forever. And, and also what, what, what he has achieved this season, I think is totally underestimated. And, and it shows how skewed a perception has become and our expectations have become. Just because there are a few super clubs out there who are regularly on almost 100-point seasons and we think it's normal, it's not. What what Arsenal has done since the beginning of the season is simply not normal. They haven't got the means of a Manchester City or a PSG or even a Bayern uh, or a Manchester United.
2: Dicko says, insert my outrage at you not mentioning Ben White when talking about England choices at right back in this week's Football Weekly. He's been amazing this season. Should be on the plane, as you put it. Loving the rest of the pod, as always. Thank you, Dicko. Uh, World Cup squads are being announced. Wilson, did you like the Brazil squad where everyone who got in the squad videoed themselves it's almost as if they already knew they were all going to be in the squad to be all filming themselves unless there are lots of videos of Brazilians not making it and just being sad that we just that we that we will never see but they you know I mean there's loads of Premier League players in there I don't know they you imagine they have quite a good shot at this
4: yeah I think they do I mean they they've only lost once in the last 3 years I think in in 29 games which is in the final of the Copa America against Argentina the I mean, and I think yeah, they are playing really well. I I, I slightly question whether they're over attacking. They did, you know, uh, Fred and Casemiro at the back of midfield plus four really gifted forwards. Is that enough against a really really top class side? And I think that's one of the problems that non-European nations have building to this World Cup. That very few of them have been able to play against European teams. So Brazil, since they lost to Belgium in the last World Cup. Uh, have only played, I think, the Czech Republic, so they just haven't been tested. Argentina similarly, Argentina on this thirty-five game unbeaten run, so they're two off the the all-time record. Um, but they've only played three European teams in that. One of them, Estonia. Brazil and Argentina both look really good going into this World Cup, but there is that that, that question mark there. At least Argentina played the finalissima against Italy last summer and won three 0 and looked very impressive. But yeah, Brazil Brazil clearly are one of the favourites.
2: They've got no no Bobby Firmino, so maybe his video was there. It's almost like you've made it to judges' houses. You imagine Alex Teller's hugging Louis Walsh and then diving in a swimming pool when finding out he's in the squad. Danny Elvis has been picked, which has surprised a few, because um, uh, it's almost as like if he's been picked just for bands. so He's the you know the, for Chile, he's the Connor Cody um, cases. Seemingly Brazil have selected as a chief cheerleader for their World Cup squad do you think every team should dedicate one place in the 26 and identify them as to provide as such to provide bants if so who would make the key squads Evra for France Parler for England
0: well I, th- I think there's uh, in the Welsh squad I think Chris Gunters might not get picked and people are saying you've got to take Chris Gunter even if it's just for bants you've got to take Chris Gunter because he's you know, so many caps, he's been such a loyal servant to Wales and it would just be absolutely crushingly cruel to leave him out. I I think you can't underestimate the importance of having people who are good lads to have around the place because being cloistered in a hotel at a tournament, I imagine, is quite boring. But you have to also be careful that it's not a, a sort of James Haskell Archbishop of Banterbury, England, rugby type, who's going to be setting fire to your clothes or jumping out of wardrobes and scaring
2: you, and you know, uh, vomiting in your taking your entire taking your entire bedroom and then putting it outside exactly as it's made up. You can't see Chris Gunter, can't see Chris Gunter doing that. Uh, the French squad, I mean, that's a, that's always been known for its for its you know happy bants and all those kind of. Things. What, are you, what are you expecting? That's announced on Wednesday, Philippe.
3: It's announced Wednesday uh, at 7 o'clock on, on national news by Didier Deschamps. Um, the one thing, and I know this sounds really odd, apparently Deschamps hasn't made his mind up as to how many people, many players he wanted to take with him. I, I'm not inventing this. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that he says, we can only travel uh, to Qatar with players who are fit. And obviously, one of the biggest problems that he has is the fact that the number of players who are injured, uh, including, of course, Paul Pogba and Golo Kante, we know won't be there. Mike Mignon looks, uh, it looks really, really iffy. There are quite a few other players as well. There's even a doubt about Karim Benzema at the moment. People are asking themselves questions because he keeps missing games for Real Madrid. So... So we don't know, is, is, to be, to, is the honest answer. I mean, some of the choices he made when France last played pretty badly in the Nations League have left people wondering as well if players like uh, Kamavinga and, and even William Saliba, if you can believe it, uh, would be in his 23 or 26, which is quite extraordinary. Um, might have to do something with the fact that Deschamps never travels to see his players in the flesh and just entrust scouts. He, he never comes. Um, so there, there are an awful lot of question marks. Uh, Giroud seems to be in it. The rumours are that he will be one of the happy faces videoing himself a message of, let's go for Qatar. Or to quote Jenny Infantino, now is all.
2: Now is all. Surely, surely Deschamps. I mean he can't just watch Ligue 1. Like like what surely he's going to some football matches.
3: No, I mean watch he watches, he watches that he watches the games and so forth, but he's not one of those uh, national team coaches who travels to to watch players in the flesh. That that's that's what he does or rather what he doesn't do. Um, so Giroud should be on the plane and uh, with a chance of course of becoming France's all-time great um, goal scorer, which would be quite interesting. Um, but no there are loads of areas of doubt because he's uh, He's keeping his cards very close to his chest. And the reason for that is, is because of the physical, the pitiful physical condition of many of his star players. Um, which is why when you were talking about France losing in the semi-finals and penalties, I, I, I think it's more France getting out in the group stage. There's a part of me that keeps thinking that we're going to relive uh, Korea 2002 uh, with this particular group. Um, the number of players who are just not fit is, is just phenomenal
2: um it's great that Christian Eriksen who, who will come up against France in that group um is fit and is going um after what happened at the Euros Australia are also in that group they named their squad and uh, 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 uh down here there's a soccer twitter is is a sort of is is it's quite an exciting place to see what happens and they're up in arms because the manager Graham Arnold has selected not the reserve keeper that the fans were expecting I'm not sure if that's what's going to make the difference, is my <laughs> necessarily my thought to Australia. But anyway, uh, those who uh, uh, will take that flippant remark and, and run with it, because it's been a huge scandal in Australia today. Uh, anyway, that'll do for uh, part two. Um, uh, Havard Smellness from Josimar will join us in just a second, and uh, we'll talk about the case of Abdullah Ibais. <laughs> Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Let's talk about the uh, case of Abdullah Ibaez. We've talked about it before. He was the Deputy Communications Director for the uh, Supreme Committee before being removed from the role in 2019. He was sentenced to five years on fraud charges. Human Rights Watch and Fair Square say they believe his confession was coerced and that he's been singled out because of his support for migrant workers in Qatar. Uh, Havard Melnes from our friends at Josimar joins us now. Havard, lovely to see you. How are you?
5: Thanks. Uh, I'm fine, and thanks for having me. It,
2: it, it's a pleasure. So so what? what's the latest? He had an appeal rejected last week. On what grounds?
5: Uh, well, uh, on no grounds, really. And uh, since uh, since Wednesday, he's been put in, in uh, solitary confinement, Um, uh, And the reason for this is that the guards discovered that he had written uh, a letter that he was uh, going to give his uh, wife on her next visit. And also now is that uh, um, he can only be given one phone call every uh, 10 days. Uh, And they have threatened uh, Abdullah if he kind of escalates the situation. uh, He will be banned from uh, visits and calls for 30 days.
2: He's previously been on hunger strike. Um, he, he's, he's thinking about doing it again during the World Cup, isn't
5: he? Yeah, he, yes, he is uh, seriously considering it. You know, he's been imprisoned for almost a year. For him, a, a mental roller coaster that the court uh, won't touch his case. It's really frustrating for him. He's in, he's in jail, uh, you know, based on one thing and one thing only and that was his uh, was his forced uh, uh, confession
2: and, and remind people because it's been a while since we touched on the story in what in what way did he support the migrant workers what what was it that that changed from him being part of the supreme committee to to not
5: well in august 2019 there were these uh, strikes uh, which thousands and thousands of uh, migrant workers uh, participated in. At the Supreme Committee, uh, Crisis Comes Group, where senior members of the, uh, the Supreme Committee uh, are all are all in that part of that group, in, including the 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 you know the World Cup boss Hassan Al tawadi himself. Well, there was a strike at uh, outside Al shahania one of the most notorious uh, labor camps in inside Qatar, and 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 on the crisis uh, comes group. Uh, 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 they, they they brought up the strike, but they also told that, uh, you know, uh, no World Cup uh, workers uh, were uh, involved in that uh, strike. And, and then Hassan Al-Tawadi uh, instructed his group that we need to get our social media people to tell, uh, you know, that this is uh, not the Supreme Committee related. And then at this point, uh, Abdullah ibai's uh, intervened. Because it was indeed uh, 2022 related, uh, many of the strikers had been working on World Cup uh, stadiums and haven't gotten paid uh, for uh, up to uh, f- four months. Abdullah, you know, uh, argued against against going to the media uh, because many of the strikers were indeed uh, World Cup uh, uh, related. And then at this point, uh, you know, there, so, there was a heated uh, uh, dialogue or, uh, you know, debate within the crisis comes group. And at this point, Hassan Al-Tawadi leaves a voice message that uh, 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 basically said, you, "You we need to put a spin on it. Two months later, uh, suddenly the SC started uh, an internal uh, investigation into a tender. One day, Abdullah Ibas was picked up by... Uh, uh, CID officer the cr- criminal investigation department, they basically forced the, the, the confession out of him, you know, he, several times to have a lawyer present and then the CID officers will tell him uh, story, things like uh, do you think you are in an American movie, uh, uh, you know you don't get to speak to a lawyer here we can hide you here from, for six months uh, and no one will know where you are Um, and Abdullah, a married man, a father of two small boys, got really, really scared at this point and, uh, you know, finally signed
3: uh, the confession.
2: Philippe, it might sound like a really obvious question, but why is this case so important? Or what does this case tell us?
3: First of all, um, it's a direct implication of the Supreme Committee, so you cannot say that it's not World Cup related. So it's perfectly legitimate for us to talk about it as a football subject here. Second thing, I think it shows you how... um, Qatar functions as a police state and how its judiciary functions, um, where rights, which, by the way, are not Western rights, but actually are enshrined in Qatari legal system, are not respected. And that nobody... It shows you as well how vulnerable you are when you front up to the authority in that particular country. Uh, be it to the Royal Family or, in this case, uh, to the Supreme Committee. It's very difficult not to... Uh, I don't have much else to say, to be honest about it, because I think, I think the case speaks for itself.
2: FIFA's response to this has been a short statement issued on the 8th of November 2021, stating it is FIFA's position that any person deserves a trial that is fair and where due process is observed and respected. The Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy in a statement last November said... Abdullah Ibais's claim that he was targeted for taking a position on a labour-related matter is a fabrication and a lie. The allegations presented by Ibais have no credibility. The case against him is rooted in evidence of alleged manipulation and misuse of state funds and has absolutely nothing to do with personal opinions or actions on labour-related matters. We've done podcasts on the treatment of migrant workers, amongst other things, which you will hear uh, during our World Cup previews next week. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's really worth going to Josimar uh, J-O-S-I-M-A-R football.com uh, to order your copy. Havard, uh, always good to talk to you. Keep up the good work, my friend.
5: Okay, thank you. Thanks for having
3: me.
2: Philippe, you've done a lot of stuff w- with with Josimar. Um, you wanted to talk about the information wars that, that, that he brought up.
3: Yeah, because it's really nasty at the moment. It's absolutely toxic, actually, particularly on social networks. Uh, I'm not going to name names because um, I don't want to get you uh, into trouble, Max, or, or producer Joel, uh, having to cut so much of what I'm going to say. Uh, but one thing I find um, fascinating and, and quite in, a, in quite a horrible way is uh, how there have been they, there is now um, there are now so many people from Western countries. Uh, they can be uh, American, British, uh, Swiss, German, uh, whatever. Uh, who are now speaking on, on social networks and criticizing the critics of Qatar. And these people are very often academics, people who are doctors, professors, and so forth, who suddenly are taking on positions which, when you look at it a bit more closely, think, why are these people suddenly defending, or why are they defending Qatar to that extent, to the point that they sound like uh, like they're parroting the line of the regime? And what I would say is that it's an area that I want to look at, because I'm very interested in the links between some of these people and uh, Qatari establishments and Qatari organizations. There's a lot of very devious information being spread at the moment. There is a lot of hypocrisy as well. I think we're going to touch on that in a second. But it is absolutely toxic, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that some people who have uh, a certain stature, notably in the academic world, are being used by the Qataris to uh, further their, their message Uh, which is a very aggressive message. Like basically what they're saying is if you criticize Qatar, you're a racist. You know, that's basically it. It it comes down to that, which is of course complete bollocks. Uh, But there are a number of people within Western academia who are quite willing to take on that position. And I have to say, we have to question their motives and we should look at um, why they are taking this position, which absolutely from the point of reason makes no sense. And I'll be doing that.
4: Well, we we know we we, you know, we know now that Qatar has paid fans, you know, with forty to fifty England fans, forty to fifty Welsh fans, forty to fifty Dutch fans. If they're paying fans, yeah, don't you know there are other paid chills. They are paying people to put the right view out there, and you know it's not it's not just fans who are getting paid. And I think that is really really obvious. You don't have to look very hard to work out who they are.
2: Interesting on that fan thing. There was a uh, an Australian fan called Paul Bateson, and was one of those fans. Couldn't really afford to get to guitars. Followed the Socceroos everywhere. Has since the you know since it sort of come out, has had a change of heart, and you know sent a big statement saying you know this is uh, not how I want to follow my football team. So I, I think that was an interesting part of seeing what's happened with those fans who've been paid to go out there. We've seen protests in Germany, actually, Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, Haar Berlin, all ha- held up, boycott Qatar banners at, uh, at Bundesliga games. Another one read, Qatar, uh, Abschalten, German for Qatar, switch off. It is interesting, Barry, isn't it? How just There's just much more fan engagement there than perhaps anywhere else. I can't think of anywhere that's uh, uh, that's more engaged than there.
0: Yeah, um, and good for them. Um, it's, it's impressive to see. You would never see this in the Premier League. The, doesn't seem, I don't know if it's because of the just Premier League grounds are quite dull by comparison to other grounds you see around Europe, Um, maybe because crowds are getting older and tickets are too expensive and there isn't really an ultra culture in in England where you have it in other countries but uh, it was very impressive to see I probably won't do any good but Fair play to them for trying and, and
2: grabbing our attention. Uh, FIFA has written to all 32 teams um, uh, competing at the World Cup, telling them to, quote, now focus on the football. It was signed by Jenny Infantino and Secretary-General Fatma Samora. Uh, we know football does not live in a vacuum. We're equally aware there are many challenges and difficulties of a political nature all around the world. But please do not allow football to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists. At FIFA, we try to respect all opinions and beliefs without handing out moral lessons to the rest of the world. No one people or culture or nation is better than any other. The principle is the very foundation stone of mutual respect and non-discrimination. And this is also one of the core values of football. So please, let's all remember that. And let's... Football takes centre stage. We have the unique occasion opportunity to welcome and embrace everyone, regardless of origin, background, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or nationality. CONMEBOL have have backed this directive. I wonder, Wilson, as someone who's going, sort of how conscious you are of of kind of the responsibility of covering everything when you're out there.
4: Yeah, and it's going to be very difficult because the World Cup is, you know, they're always incredibly busy. They're always incredibly difficult. And to an extent, and I, I, I'm very aware this will sound like a cop out. My job is to cover the football to create the space for other people to cover the more serious stuff. But, you know, I will still, as far as possible, try and cover everything. But, I mean, the the, the problem with that letter is, you know, the idea that, that homosexuality is an ideology is ludicrous. It's a, you know, it's just who you are. Uh, so if the laws of a country present an existential threat to that, those two things cannot be reconciled. And, you know, I think it's very easy to get lured down cul-de-sacs about, you know, a, a Western... Liberal attitude sort of trying to colonize the rest of the world in imposing you know, our values. FIFA statutes, Article three says, you know, there can be no discrimination on the grounds of uh, race sex or um, so race, gender, or sexuality. Well manifestly Qatar cannot stage a World Cup and abide by that statute. So the statutes mean nothing, and that's the statute's been voted on by the entire FIFA Congress. so This World Cup goes against FIFA's own values.
2: Brewdog, meanwhile, uh, have declared themselves an anti-sponsor of the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, We thought long and hard about whether we wanted to show matches in our bars, decided to do so for two reasons. Uh, One, if you love craft beer and love football, you shouldn't be denied the opportunity to enjoy them together just because uh, FIFA is corrupt, their words, uh, not mine. Uh, All profits from lost lager sold during the tournament we donated to human rights charities. We'll raise a lot more money if we show the matches in our
3: bars. Philippe. This is exactly what I'm talking about. These people suddenly realising where we are, uh, jumping on the table, and all they want is basically people to, to drink their beer and go to their pubs. And their beer is not even that good. I think, actually, by the way, uh, I don't think this campaign has brought them the kind of positive publicity that they were hoping for, judging by the reaction on on. Social media in particular, I think people have seen through that particular game very, very easily. It's actually despicable to try and make money on, on misery like this. I, I don't have any words. I, I, I would never set foot on in a brewdog pub ever again. Um, look, we, just to say,
2: look, obviously, there's a lot to talk about with Qatar. Um, and we've touched on a lot of it in quite a short period of time but we have recorded specials uh which you will hear next week on on quite the gear change tim says does barry know he's followed by the fastest 38 year old in the world Elliot kipchoge maybe he's a listener can the pod wish him a happy birthday and congratulate him on his achievement um uh so yes happy birthday to mr kipchoge Uh, who is a big Barry Glendening fan presumably not following you for middle distance training tips (laughs) (laughs) I hope not my my suspicion and suffocated kumquat rap says it's a cruel twist of fate that Twitter's death knell has sounded the same week we found out about Barry's cork board depriving us of what could have been an all-time great parody account sad times he says Um, and that'll pretty much do uh, for today's podcast Uh, thank you Philippe as always
3: thank you very much
2: Max Uh, thanks Jonathan Cheers, thank you. Uh, We'll chat to you when you're out in Qatar. And Aaron says, what happened to Monday's pod for not saying thank you, Barry? And Barry replying, you're welcome during the outro music. That is always the highlight of my day when a pod releases. Otherwise, love the pod. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Football Weekly, was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett.